You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks joins the Post to discuss the latest developments with the company's coronavirus treatments as cases continue to climb across the country. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist here at the Post. And today we have another in our series on the path forward combating COVID-19. Our special guest today is David Ricks, who's the chief executive of Eli Lilly, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and a company that is pioneering the use of two new uh, therapy drugs that we're gonna talk about today. Uh, Welcome to Washington Post Live, David. It's good to have you. Great to be with you. Thank you. So let's start with these two new uh, therapies. Uh, We've had so much uh, news around the world in the last week uh, about the COVID-19 vaccine produced by Pfizer, the uh, emergency use approval by the FDA, and then the first shots administering it uh, here in the United States. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo said yesterday uh, that this is the weapon that will win the war. Um, But there are other lesser known weapons in this war, and among them are the therapeutic drugs that Eli Lilly has been developing that I I think people know less about. So let's begin with with those. Uh, Two of your therapies have received FDA emergency use authorization, an anti-inflammatory arthritis drug, baricitinib, and a synthetic coronavirus antibody drug, bamlinivimab. Forgive my <laughs> it's <laughs> a hard botching one. the pronunciations, but but explain if you if you would for your non-scientist host and for our audience what these drugs are and what they do for COVID patients. Absolutely. Well, um, I do think um, this is a moment for some optimism that we're at the, um, the beginning of the end uh, for this pandemic, uh, not just for the vaccine reasons you mentioned, but for the, because medicines are emerging and becoming more widely available. So at the beginning, if we go back to February, uh, the industry and our company, Lilly, uh, worked on three basic pathways to make a difference. One is to repurpose medicines we already have against COVID-19, see if they're effective. Baricitinib, or its trade name is Illumiant, it's sold as a rheumatoid arthritis drug in the US, um, is such an example where combined with another medicine from Gilead called Remdesivir, um, it appears to to allow people to leave the hospital early, and particularly those who are on oxygen and more advanced. Um, That's so important because today there's 100,000 people in the hospital with COVID-19, beds are filling up and in some localities full. Um, and discharging from the hospital is a is a, obviously a very positive indicator for survival. So that's a um, an important advance. Um, we developed that with the NIH and the other company, Gilead, and that's available now, widely available. There's no constraints. Uh, doctors are using it around the country. The second strategy was to develop new medicines to attack COVID-19. Um, and here's where the uh, synthetic antibody uh, which is a complicated name that a lot of people have fun with, called bamlanivimab. Um, you can just call it the Lilly antibody if you are sick and interested in finding out more about it. Um, this strategy uh, basically um, takes a turbocharged version of what your body does by itself 
when you first become infected. When you first become infected, your body um, notices the virus as different and it mounts an antibody response against it. Um, we've isolated antibodies from survivors of COVID-19 and taken the very best one, the most potent and effective, and we turn it into a medicine by engineering it, and then we make it in factories at huge scale. Um, this is a relative of the idea of, of plasma, if, if viewers are, uh, are familiar with that strategy where you take the whole blood plasma from survivors, only it's much more potent and we can make more of it because we don't rely on donors, we just make it in uh, tanks. And so that received approval here this fall and uh, to date we've shipped over a quarter million doses around the country and many of those have been dispensed and um, it's proven to uh, reduce the risk of going to the hospital if you're early in the disease by 70 to 80%. Um, so it, we're directing that at those over 65 and with pre-existing conditions. So uh, there are two interesting testimonials that, that I read about. I'm not going to attempt the name again, but the, the Lily antibody. Yeah. One I think was from uh, Chris Christie, the former governor of yeah. New Jersey, who said he received it in October and that he thought it aided significantly in his recovery. And then I, I saw a, a comment from a nurse practitioner in Florida who was quoted this week as saying that this Lily antibody provides almost a temporary immunity that prevents the progression of symptoms. Uh, yeah. Help us to understand what those comments are, are, are telling us about the efficacy of this, this therapy. Well, I think they're, they're very similar to what we prove, have proven in controlled clinical trials, which is there's a profound um, impact and it's quick. Within a few days time, patients who begin to develop a lot of symptoms uh, feel better, not universally, but most patients feel better rather quickly. Um, I think uh, Governor Christie's experience um, exhibited that. Um, he acquired the drug, I should say, before it was had emergency use approval through a special pathway the FDA has for single person clinical trials. His doctor pursued that for him um, and um, obviously it was a successful case. Today though, you don't need to do that. And I think this is an important message to get out. There's been a lot of reporting that these um, antibodies are scarce. And while it's true, we don't have enough to treat all Americans who get COVID, we do have enough to treat the highest risk Americans. And we've distributed them in all 50 states and, and the territories in the United States. And um, what people need to do is ask their doctor if they're a candidate. Uh, usually that means you have those risk factors. What the nurse was saying uh, is uh, in fact true biologically. What we're doing is um, give, it's called passive immunization. We're giving you a, a, an artificial immune response as if you had the virus prior. And what that does is allows your body to rapidly attack the virus and dispose of it. And then this medicine stays in your system for four to six weeks. So during that period of time, it should not be possible to become reinfected. Um, and that's an important uh, protection. Ultimately, we need the vaccine. Uh, that's the idea as we get universally vaccinated. But as you know, David, we, we won't have enough vaccines for every American probably till sometime mid-summer. Um, and so until we get to that point, uh, medicines like these can make a big difference in improving the lives of many, many of our citizens. And just so our, our viewers are, are clear, they, these uh, therapies are for use if you get sick. In other words, they're not vaccines, they're not preventive. 
but they're once you have an onset of, of symptoms. Is that right? That's right. Although with this antibody, Lily antibody, um, there are analogous situations where we've given a similar medicine for a different virus before you have the virus and it actually can prevent infection. So that was the case with Ebola, for instance. There's another virus, respiratory virus called RSV, with, where that's the case. And in, our, in animal experiments, in, in monkeys, um, we can simulate that same effect. You give the medicine prophylactically and then it prevents the infection. We have a very large clinical study going on with nursing home residents. Um, here, the idea is you give it to the residents before there's a infection or if they're in a facility where there's been one infection and they are not yet positive to see if we can stop the spread. But that experiment's still ongoing. It hasn't been proven yet. In the case of vaccines, we, we've had this extraordinary uh, logistical uh, effort uh, to facilitate the distribution and storage facilities uh, known as Operation Warp Speed. Are, are your therapeutics uh, part of that Operation Warp Speed process? And if not, just give us a sense of how the distribution logistical part of this is working. Yeah, so uh, one of our medicines is part of the Operation Warp Speed and one of them isn't. The Lilly antibody, which was developed specifically for COVID is, and Operation Warp Speed is one of the most effective things the government has done to, to my eye um, in this pandemic, which is essentially a big red tape cutting exercise so that uh, we can move at the speed of the science and take risks on um, development we wouldn't normally take um, because we have more information we're sharing with the government agencies of interest, whether it be the FDA or the CDC so, or NIH. So um, that's what Warp Speed has done. It allowed us to go from uh, uh, the idea of a antibody in late February to uh, introducing a new product for a disease we didn't know about 12 months ago uh, inside of nine months, which is a, a record for our company in its history and maybe for the industry, uh, to, to be frank. Same thing happened with the vaccine, that, that incredible speed enabled by that red tape cutting. We have sold um, all of our US doses to Operation Warp Speed. Uh, the military is managing the logistics and procurement side of that. And then they direct us where to ship uh, the product to hospitals and infusion centers around the country for, in the case of the antibody. In the case of Illumiant or Bercidinib, um, this is already a marketed drug. So the role of Operation Warp Speed is more limited. We don't have supply constraints. Um, we're coordinating with them to get make sure that key hospitals and outbreak centers have access to it. But actually, hospitals can just buy the drug um, as they would from their wholesaler like any other medicine. And are there priorities uh, for the distribution of this Lilly antibody as with the, the COVID, COVID vaccine? In other words, who, who gets it first? What's the, what's the order in which you can, yeah. you can stand to get it? The, the government's playing two roles here. One is to uh, dictate which states receive how much. And so, as I said, we've, we've made a quarter million doses and shipped those so far. We'll make another almost three quarters of a million in the balance of this month. And those will go out um, to the states as well, as directed by the government. They're using a uh, calculation based on disease burden and population to do that. And I think it's a reasonable task for them to do. As a manufacturer, I think we would find ourselves in a difficult position trying to make those kinds of choices. Uh, they have good public health data and they're 
directing the allocation. The other thing they do, and the FDA worked with us on, is um, we know we don't have enough for every American, as we said, but we do have enough for those high-risk patients who are the highest risk of developing uh, more disease and going to the hospital. The goal here is to treat right after you have a positive diagnosis to prevent that. So we define with them who that is, which is people over 65 and those uh, over 50 with, with uh, pre-existing health conditions and um, some with compromised immune systems down to the, the age of 18. Um, and so that's what, what we call in the label, that's the directions for doctors is to use it in those patients. And that helps restrict the supply too, to those who can benefit uh, the most given we don't have uh, enough for universal coverage. So just to underline this for our, for our viewers to, to make sure that, that uh, we're all under, understanding this, if, if you're over 65 and you get symptoms, you ought to go to your doctor and say, this little antibody may be able to help me. Uh, and yes. if you're over 50 and you have uh, comorbidities, you're, you're especially at risk, same thing. Is that, is that basically right. the takeaway here? Exactly right. And as I said before, there's been some reporting that people can't get them. This, is, this should not be because of supply. It's a last mile problem where maybe their doctor's not aware or their hospital hasn't set up a special place to, to receive the drug, which is an infusion, kind of like giving blood, but in reverse. You need to go sit in a chair and they put a line in your arm and you, the, the medicine drips into you. Um, and that's how you receive it. It's a routine practice in medicine, but when patients have COVID, hospitals have had to set up special facilities. That's being done day by day everywhere. Some states have, have used up all their inventory because they've done a great job getting it out to the patients in need. Some states have not. Um, so I just wanna encourage patients who are in those categories we just discussed, David, to really ask their doctor and be persistent um, to see if they're a candidate for this therapy. It could really make a, a significant difference in their outcome. So you told us that uh, Operation Warp Speed, the, the US government has bought on the order of a million uh, doses of this. Right. Uh, what about uh, distribution globally? How is that proceeding? Uh, yes. On what uh, basis uh, with the COVID vaccine produced by Pfizer, there was uh, some chagrin thinking that the US government didn't buy enough, um, maybe. Uh, what about in this, in this case, if there's a, a desire for more in the United States, are you able to su supply it? Well, supply is increasing. We've partnered with another drug company, Amgen, and then a contract um, organization that makes this kind of complicated drug um, in Korea as well. So we're ramping up supply. We repurposed two of our own factories um, and we'll really start to hit stride in Q1. So far in, in 2020, we've sold about 95% of what we're gonna be able to ship to the US government. The other 5% to Canada who um, uh, approved this as well and is distributing it. Um, so far, uh, there are countries in Central Europe and the Middle East who also have just approved it and will get supply beginning at the end of the month, early um, next year. We try to be very thoughtful about this. It's a, it can be controversial as a global company, um, as you appreciate, David, of we operate in all these places and we're a citizen there as well. Um, we went to the U.S. first, but as countries approve uh, the Lilly antibody, um, they can then procure it from us directly. And we've committed to allocate that should we have constraints by disease burden between countries. So the countries with the most out, uh, outbreak will get more and those countries with less will get less. Um, that's a difficult um, decision to make, but one we think is ethical, um, independent of ability to pay or other factors. 
And then uh, we also have decided to price the medicine in a very different way than normal, which is to ask the wealthiest countries, uh, as defined by gross national income per capita, to pay the same amount, which is the US price, essentially, a little more than $1,000 a dose. Um, and those middle-income countries, countries like Brazil and South Africa, to pay quite a bit less than that, um, less than half of that. And then low-income countries, we've partnered with the Gates Foundation to make this available at no cost or marginal cost, so that they're really paying um, well below the, the, the total cost of, of the therapy. Um, and that's just beginning now in a few countries uh, as well. So um, kind of a unique setup, given the pandemic that we thought was the most ethical and appropriate approach. Uh, it's fascinating. And I need to just ask you, is, is that a model, do you think, for future distribution of, of crucial uh, drugs, therapeutic medicines, that, that sliding scale uh, pay according to your ability? I do. And, and as an industry leader, we've advocated for the system, not just for pandemics, but for regular uh, medicines as well. You know, the, the cost to produce a medicine is not zero, um, but most of the cost is the R&D cost. Um, to prove it's worth something to the cost of your scientific laboratories to develop it. And um, we think that more of the burden of that cost should be shared amongst wealthy countries and less of the burden of that amongst poor countries for any medicine. Uh, and that way we can have more equitable health improvement everywhere. And that ability to pay at the country level anyway is not a barrier um, to access for, for new breakthrough medicines. Um, we're trying it here in this pandemic. Uh, because it's new, things are moving fast, governments seem to be pretty cooperative with the idea, but we hope that uh, elements of this catch on. Before we, we leave, leave these uh, lily uh, therapeutics, I want to ask you about a, a third uh, therapeutic uh, uh, that's said to be on, on trial now, I believe in, in Florida. Um, could you tell us about this, that, that third drug, uh, how the trial seems to be going. And then more broadly, I'm just curious about the role of these, I believe I'm saying this right, monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies in treatment of, of disease more broadly. Are we entering a, a, a new era in terms of the efficacy of uh, the ability to target and have efficacious treatment? Right. So David, the name of the third drug, did you have the name of that? Or you're saying it's a really... It is a Lilly drug, and I, I just okay, had yeah. it in my yeah. notes, and forgive me, I don't yeah. have the name. But yeah, so there's a companion antibody we've developed that is also being trialed now, as you're saying, and it's under review at the FDA as a potential combination. So it would go with the bamlanivimab, the one that's available now, and it would boost its effect um, to some degree, and together um, provide a, a almost complete harnessing of the virus and uh, could boost the ability to stay out of the hospital and get better even faster. This uh, kind of second generation approach, um, we're completing the studies and uh, reviewing that material with the FDA as we speak. Probably in 2021, that'll become available and may become the standard uh, that gets used. Uh, your broader question is a very important one. Monoclonal antibodies were developed in the US in the laboratories of drug companies like Lilly um, in the 90s and have evolved to become one of the main ways we target serious disease. Uh, started with disease like cancer and arthritis, um, chronic conditions, but now are being used pretty broadly, including, you know, two years ago, we launched one for migraine headaches, um, a new monoclonal antibody that's 
very effective in that condition. That's a very common condition, uh, but the cost to make them are coming down and our ability to target them is getting better and better. It's a very promising new type of medicine. So it's probably a, a hidden benefit of this uh, terrible pandemic that it's uh, encouraged us all to learn more about, about what's happening out in the pharma space. We'll come back to that uh, issue in a, in a moment, but I want to ask you to speak for a moment about the vaccine side of, of, of the COVID-19 story. Um, we, we now have begun the mass vaccination, uh, but, but begun it initially, slowly, with uh, high-risk healthcare workers, and then moving on to different categories. What's your uh, reaction to the way in which the, the distribution of the vaccine is, is being planned. Is, is that the right way to be doing this? I think that tiering by patient type is very important. Um, we need to avoid a first come first serve system that would be chaotic or even worse uh, to the highest bidder system where people could cut the line based on means. Um, my wife's a pediatrician, so I have some empathy for this position, but the most at-risk people for COVID-19, and we saw this in the spring in the horrible outbreak in New York City, are people who are constantly exposed to a high viral load in the air around them. And even with the most uh, careful you know, mask wearing uh, that you could do, uh, sometimes the virus can still, that's just reducing the odds. It, it, uh, and that kind of exposure is very dangerous over time. So nurses, um, even those who are cleaning hospitals, uh, working um, to admit patients, et cetera, transport patients, all of them, I think should be the first priority. Then uh, the protocol from the CDC is to go to seniors who are particularly in nursing homes in congregate settings. That's proven to be the most lethal uh, setting. If you're a healthcare worker, you're most probable to get sick. If you're a senior in a nursing home, you're the most likely to die of COVID-19. And we need to stop that. And th the way to do that is using vaccination as well. So those priorities seem clear. From there, the argument probably gets more complicated. There's a discussion about essential workers. So, you know, uh, food service workers and uh, people who work in a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant, um, that they should be next. But there's a lot of people in that category and we can't get to them all at once. States are then determining who in that bucket uh, goes in what order. And I suspect there will have some differences between states and that will cause some um, consternation. Um, the good news is the volumes are growing pretty rapidly. And speaking to my colleague at Pfizer, um, I, I think that February will be constrained, but by March and April, pretty much all essential workers and many others who want to, vac to be vaccinated will be able to get vaccinated. And that the spring will really be the time where we'll, we'll have to lean harder into persuading reluctant, hesitant people to get vaccinated. We'll have enough supply, but not uh, enough you know, uh, citizens who are lining up. And of course, the value of a vaccine isn't the vaccine, it's the vaccination. You need to put it into people for it to stop the spread of the virus. Um, so I hope that helped to give you a lay of the, the land. Helps, helps a lot and it's, it's encouraging. I should ask you, you're uh, operating around the world. How do you think the U.S. is doing in terms of this distribution challenge relative to other countries where you're located? Well, it's just started in one or two other countries. In the UK, uh, had a week, week or so ahead of us, um, and uh, uh, Canada's beginning as well. Uh, um, so far, I think it's fine. Uh, now, the real test won't be for healthcare workers. 
healthcare facilities are quite used to administering vaccines to their own populations. In the hospital where my wife works, for instance, you have to get a TB test annually, a flu vaccine. You have to have up-to-date vaccination schedule for all serious infectious diseases, which is accepted because people um, don't want to get sick from their physician or their nurse. And um, that uh, regimen is given frequently by the hospital to their employees. That's the phase we're in now. So I don't expect many problems and I don't think we've seen them. As this grows to nursing homes, that becomes a little more complicated, but their residents are stationary. They're, they're in their home um, and being cared for by healthcare professionals. And then as we get out to essential workers, I think it'll get logistically harder. We'll need drive-through facilities or for large employers like us to set up on-site um, perhaps tents where people can go and, and get the shot. Um, and then record keeping will become even more important. So people get the shot at the right frequency. As you know, you need to get two different shots of this initial two vaccines, Moderna's or Pfizer's. J&J's holds the promise of one shot. That's quite a bit simpler than two. Um, you need to have them spaced apart by three or four weeks, depending on which one you get. And then we don't want to double vaccinate people uh, when we have a constrained uh, volume. So uh, record keeping will be important. Those are all challenges ahead of us. And you know, the, this administration has taken an approach to delegate many of that decision-making to states, much like with our medicine, uh, we just spoke about the Lilly antibody. You see a lot of differences by states um, in how they're executing. And I suspect that'll be true with the vaccine as well. Let me ask about one small but worrisome uh, bit of news. And, and that was the uh, discovery in England, I believe in, in, uh, in Southwest uh, England, of a new variant of, of COVID. Uh, are you concerned about uh, mutations, new variants, and are you confident that your therapies and the vaccines will be able to cope with those uh, strains as, as, as this disease evolves? It's an important thing to watch. Um, I've read a little bit about this new strain. There was a lot of reporting two weeks before about this mink farm in Denmark, which had another strain. It's important that um, uh, people know that there are uh, hundreds of variant strains already out in the wild. Most of them um, aren't fit, meaning they, they lose the race with other forms of the virus to spread. They don't spread as well, and so they die off. Um, what we're watching for is more fit strains that outcompete the core one we're, we're seeing now, and if they have some difference in the um, symptoms and the downstream infection. Um, so far, we haven't seen that. We have seen a couple variants of this virus since its natural history began in Wuhan, and it has some of those variants have improved the ability to spread of the virus. Uh, from the virus's standpoint, that's improved. From ours, it's, it's worse. But they haven't been more infectious once you get it. So that's important. Most scientists would say it's a relatively stable virus in terms of these mutations. Now, we've taken uh, caution against this with this a second generation approach to the Lilly antibody I described. The single antibody is good. The double antibody we're studying now and could be available in the winter will block all variants um, to uh, the spike protein, which is the main way the virus attaches to cells and spreads. And so we feel much more secure. That's one of the reasons we developed uh, that combination. With vaccines, final... it's, it's also thought that, that they'll be protected against most common variants um, that we know about. But we'll have to monitor that. 
last uh, bit of news that just broke today that I, I know your, our viewers would, would love to hear your uh, comments uh, about. That, that was the FDA approval of an at-home antigen test. Uh, uh, inexpensive, uh, easy, uh, something you can do at home, get the results right away. How big a difference do you think that uh, kind of testing could make uh, in dealing with a pan this pandemic or, or future ones? I think that's a significant uh, move, actually. Um, and I, I understand the approved is over the counter, so uh, people won't need to use a time of a doctor or a nurse to, to access it, um, and people can just test. It, it's not as accurate as the gold standard, the so-called PCR test, the one you get the deep nasal probe to, uh, um, to get the material, but it, it, it could be useful because this disease is spreading before people get very sick. And that's its most infectious period, either asymptomatic or just as they have mild symptoms. Being aware of that so that people can self-isolate, it will be a key control strategy. And it's been one of the most vexing things about COVID-19 is that, well, of course, initially we didn't have enough testing. In fact, our company got into the testing game to help support our state in the early days, um, just because we had laboratories that could do it. Um, we were really in tough shape on volume early. Now there's enough volume of testing but at times it's not as responsive as it needs to be to prevent viral spread. If it takes five days to get your test back, think of all the people, David, you would have had contact with in those five days um, and they can then become infected. So um, by having an at-home test that's um, reasonably accurate and easily accessible, I think that can really help people um, do the right thing, which is stay home if you have symptoms. And if you have a self-administered test and it's positive, definitely stay home for 10 days until um, you're clear of the virus. So we've run out of, of time. I want to thank David Ricks, the CEO of Eli Lilly, for uh, explaining complicated uh, issues, therapeutic issues that his company faces, and taking us all inside the world of big pharma, which we don't know much about. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. And the thanks really needs to go to our 8,000 scientists here in the US who developed these medicines. For, for the people who need them. And, and thankfully we did that in a rapid way. So they're making a difference today. So thank you all for, for joining us tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, join Washington Post Live at four o'clock for a behind the scenes look at the making of a new CBS all access mini series called The Stand, which is based on a Stephen King novel. My colleague, our wonderful Washington Post movie reviewer, Ann Hornaday, We'll interview actor Jovan Adepo and executive producer Benjamin Cavell. Uh, until then, thanks for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.